Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. I think Joe just scared all the kids that they might have actually had to stay for the sermon for a moment there. It was like a, the horror. But let's all join together in opening up our Bibles into Galatians chapter 1. As we continue our series through this book of Galatians, and this morning there's going to be a singular question that's going to kind of guide our time throughout the passage and the sermon. And the singular question is this, what does it look like to be entrusted with the gospel? What does it look like to not just believe in the gospel, but to be entrusted with the gospel? So, so I have a friend who works as an engineer in the defense industry. And when defense companies hire new engineers, it's not just a matter of determining whether they have the right job skills or, or the ability necessary to do the work, but they also need to do an extensive background check to see if these potential new hires can be entrusted with classified information. And so there are various clearance levels that are needed for certain jobs. And when my friend uh, was in the application process, I was interviewed by someone from that company on behalf of my friend. And so they had uh, a contractor doing all these kind of interviews and this background check for this defense manufacturer. And we sat down and I was nervous for this meeting. Like I wasn't even being interviewed, not my job, but I feel like, like his job was going to be on the line if I talked about him in the right way, but also wanted to be honest. Um, and so it was like, if I remember right, like over an hour of just various questions about him, and not just like his character, and uh, but like uh, asking about like his aunt's trip to Italy in 2005, and you know all these things where like I'm kidding, but not really, uh, and I'm like, and a lot of months like I don't really know her, and I don't know about that, but but the the whole point of the interview that I had to go under was to help them understand and grasp: can my friend be trusted with the clearance level they want to give him? Because once hired, if hired, he would be participating in the work of military-grade machinery. And so in the wrong hands, you can imagine, that can go very badly and do irreparable harm to others. But if they find that he can be entrusted with that clearance level, then he could be a valuable asset in the work that they are doing. And so I hope you can understand that illustration that in the same way, when men and women are saved by God's grace and adopted as sons and daughters, we don't just kind of wait passively for heaven and just kind of coast through this life and then eternal life starts and the real fun starts when after you die and you go to heaven. But God invites us in that moment and empowers us to participate in the kingdom-building work that he is doing in the world. And so upon believing in the gospel, we are also entrusted with the gospel. Can you be trusted with the gospel? Unfortunately, we see all over the place that when in the wrong hands, it can do irreparable harm to others and to the glory of God. But in the right hands, one can be valuable a spirit-led asset in the kingdom work to the glory of God and the flourishing of others. So I go back to the question, what does it look like to be entrusted with the gospel? And the passage we're going to dig into this morning as we turn to Galatians 2, we've taken almost a month to go through Galatians 1, now we turn to chapter 2, and I hope it will help us kind of answer that question. And so just before I read, we're going to read in a moment verses 1 through 10 of Galatians 2. 
And uh, a little bit of a heads up is that uh, this passage is one where uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Galatians or, or, or the Bible at, or at all, or, or even if you are familiar with the Bible, uh, this passage might seem pretty difficult to follow in real time. Uh, you, it might be hard to really understand like what is going on. You're, you're going to hear a lot of names. You're going to hear a lot of words and phrases that all together might leave you at the end being like, what in the world is happening? including a final verse that doesn't seem to have anything to do with everything that comes before it in this passage. And so I just want to say up front, if you feel that way during it, it's okay. Together, we're going to get a grasp of what is happening, and by God's grace, be able to see the clear, I think, applications to your life today. So, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this is Paul writing, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, here is where things are at. If you uh, maybe have not joined us in this series up to this moment, let me give you the flyover chapter one. If you have, here's the reminder. Uh, throughout chapter one, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the churches in the region of Galatia that he had helped, uh, had a hand in starting and planting uh, maybe a year or two prior. And in this letter, he is contending for the truth of the gospel. And he's urging the church to not be swayed by false teachers in Galatia who came in after Paul left and now were leading them astray. And the reason being that the gospel, and this is what we talked a lot about over the last month, the gospel is the foundational good news of the Christian faith and life. And so if you lose the foundation, or even loosen the foundation, everything else will tumble in a matter of time. And then Paul began to defend himself near the end of chapter 1, and he shared his story of conversion, his personal experience of coming to faith, and now he was then called to preach because those false teachers were openly questioning his authority in order to plant seeds of doubt and mistrust amongst those in the church. 
And after he shared his story, at the very end of the passage we looked at last week, he began to provide the evidence that he was also not swayed by the other apostles in Jerusalem because the gospel was revealed to him by God himself. So this was not man's gospel. This was God's gospel and God's calling. That's where chapter 1 ended. But now, lest the church in Galatia or the false teachers think and start to spread the rumor that Paul is just some some kind of renegade going off doing his own thing, separated from the rest of the apostolic leaders of the church, he now kind of shifts a little bit in chapter 2 to show that while he was called by God and not man, he is united with the other apostles in that they preach the same gospel. So Paul is kind of walking this figurative tightrope here, right? There's accusations coming from all sides. On one end, he was swayed by the apostles, but on the other end, he's kind of some renegade, just kind of doing his own thing with his own gospel. These these accusations seemingly coming from opposite directions, and he's trying to kind of keep a solid posture so he doesn't get pushed one way or the other. The, The image I get in my head is that Paul is in the posture of a skydiver. All right, quick Paul, raise your hand if you've been skydiving in this room. All right, few bold ones, few in the minority. Um, I have no desire to ever go skydiving. So never say never, but I, I will never go skydiving. I just I'm very sure of that. But I've seen and read about it enough. My brother who's in the military has had his share of jumps. Uh, that, that the posture that they teach you is, is the posture of an arch position. Uh, because the wind is kind of whipping all around you, literally, from all sides, above you, below you, left of you, right of you, and there's a posture that enables you to kind of stay stable despite all the winds coming from different directions. That's how I picture Paul in Galatians. That's what we're seeing him do from chapter 1 to chapter 2. He's in a theologically arched position. I was not swayed by man, for I was called by God. But that calling does does not put me above my fellow brothers in Christ or below them either. Rather, we are partnered together. We are shoulder to shoulder and being entrusted with the same gospel. I think that's the point of the letter. It's certainly his aim at this point in the letter. And verses 1 through 10, what we just read, is a story he recalls from the past in order to prove this point in the present to these churches. All right, so I hope that kind of helps at least paint the picture here. And this story... I think, illustrates what it means to be entrusted with the gospel as a follower of Christ. And so we're going to look at five parts, five aspects of what it looks like to be entrusted with the gospel from this passage that I want us all to think deeply about how we can apply this to our lives. Um, All these aspects start with the letter M. If you like that, you're welcome. If you can't stand that, I'm sorry. But that's what we're doing this morning. Number one is the motivation The motivation of someone entrusted with the gospel. So when Paul says, after 14 years, in verse 1, he likely means 14 years from his conversion, which he talked about in chapter 1. And he said this trip to Jerusalem happened because of a revelation. Most commentators agree that this revelation came through a fellow believer up in the city of Antioch, as told in the book of Acts. So I'm going to put on the screen the few verses of what this revelation likely was in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. 
It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Paul, writing the letter, was also known as Saul. And the real simple reason is that Paul is kind of the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Saul. So you see what happened here. A man inspired by the Holy Spirit prophesied that there would be a famine coming in all the region. And so the church up in Antioch knew that the church in Jerusalem was going to struggle for provision during this famine. For reasons unknown to us, but was known to them that there was things about that church they knew like they would struggle to get through a famine. Apparently in a way that the church in Antioch would not, at least maybe not to the same level. So they decided to send money to the church in Jerusalem that they can then have and then distribute to those in their church and in their community that are in need. And who do they send? Barnabas and Paul. I think this is helpful because it will shed light on that final verse that initially doesn't seem to fit. That when the Pauls say that the apostles just were asked of us one thing, that they remember the poor... And so we'll get there, but I think that helps to kind of put the puzzle together a bit. But Paul, either way, is sent to the church in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, that was the church where the, it was likely the largest church amongst the early church in the book of Acts. It's also where the most well-known apostles, if you will, are the leaders, uh, James and John and Peter. Although Peter, uh, Paul in a couple times refers to Peter as Cephas in this passage, which again is the Aramaic translation of Peter. Hope you're tracking, but Cephas is Peter. That's all you need to know. And Paul is sent on a relief mission. That, that, that's what really kind of motivates this trip. He's sent on a relief mission with a bag of money to deliver to the church in Jerusalem, which I don't think we should gloss over to eat too quickly. Because that shows both the compassion and the holistic ministry of the early church. This was the primary reason that Paul and Barnabas go. And, and Paul seemingly just agrees to go. And, and it kind of just helps us paint that picture. That when you believe in the gospel, you believe in certain doctrinal truth that has been revealed to you. It connects you with fellow believers and empowers you and motivates you to care for those believers. And so what happens is that when you're entrusted with the gospel, you see need, but you don't only see it, you have the motivation to address those needs. And so even before we get into the doctrinal aspects of this passage, uh, let's just first see that a marker of being entrusted with the gospel is seeing need and doing what you can, especially in the ministry of a local church, to address that need. That's number one. Number two, second aspect of being entrusted with the gospel, I'm just calling the meeting. First the motivation, now there's the meeting. Paul sees an opportunity here. Again, this trip is really happening to bring relief to Jerusalem, but he very intentionally brings a third person along. 
Back in Acts, we said they sent, the elders sent Barnabas and Paul. But then notice how Paul worded verse 1. And after 14 years, they went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. This was Paul's idea to bring this guy, Titus. Why Titus? As we'll see, it's because Titus was not Jewish. He was a Greek or a Gentile, as the Bible often calls anybody who's non-Jewish descent. And he was a Greek who was converted under Paul's ministry. Why is that important? Well, the false teachers that were causing trouble in Galatia, which is the reason why Paul wrote this letter to begin with, uh, were called Judaizers. And by Paul telling this story, now years later, he's indicating to the church, guys, this is not the first time I've dealt with Judaizers. This is not the first time that I've been in this situation. In fact, they have been the false teachers that have caused me the most trouble. And so while they are difficult, they can be overcome. This is an encouragement he's trying to give to the leaders in Galatia. Do not be swayed by them. I've dealt with them before. Judaizers, uh, we talked about a little bit in chapter 1, but we're going to see it more and more now as this letter unpacks. Their primary false teaching was this, that in order for Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, to be saved, in order for them to become Christians, they first had to conform to Jewish customs, the most notable sign of which was circumcision. All male believers had to, yes, believe in Jesus and be circumcised, which was the sign of the old covenant in Israel. This is a false gospel. We talked about this extensively in our second week. And this is particularly the false gospel of Jesus plus. That once you add a requirement to faith in Jesus Christ, that faith in Jesus plus something else for salvation, you destroy the gospel altogether. You don't add to it, you destroy it. So Paul knew that false teachers were in the ranks of the church in Jerusalem, saying that Paul and Peter preached different gospels, and Paul's gospel is wrong. So to set the record straight, he shows up in Jerusalem with two men who profess to be believers. Barnabas, a Jewish Christian. Titus, a Gentile Christian. Barnabas is circumcised. Titus is not. And he arranges a meeting with the church. Actually, it appears in the text, if you read it closely, like there was actually two meetings one with the whole church or a bigger number of people from within the church, and then a more exclusive private meeting with James, John, and Peter, the leaders of the church. So while he is here, he wants to set the record straight. These false teachers were wasting their time like all false teachers do. Because instead of dedicating his energy and his time towards preaching the gospel and, and reaching those outside the church, he's now having to deal with false teachers, false accusations from those inside the church. And so in this meeting, he will put on display, will Titus have to be circumcised? Will his conversion require this works of the flesh, quite literally, to accompany his faith? That's kind of the, the, the meat of this story. Paul is saying, I didn't meet with these guys because I was nervous I had the gospel wrong. Paul is not doubting himself. 
Nor was he meeting with them in order to get their praise because they're considered influential. These are the guys who walked with Jesus. These are the influential ones, the powerful ones. Paul says, I don't care if they're influential. That's a worldly designation. God shows no partiality. But in order to ensure clarity over the unity of the gospel, he sets up these meetings to show, again, the church in Galatia, keep them in mind, that you don't need to be swept away by this false teaching. And in my ministry, Paul is saying, will not be done in vain. So while this is a headache and it has to be dealt with, I'd rather be doing other things, he understands how vital a unified gospel is amongst the leaders and members of a church. And in that way, this meeting shows what it looks like to us to be entrusted with the gospel. He prioritized clarity when it came to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the foundational element of the Christian faith. And so here's where we ought to pay attention, and it's easy to not pay attention. That when the gospel gets muddied, and, and, and gospel begins to get questioned, especially within the church, we don't kind of shrug our shoulders and be like, yeah, oh well, we'll figure it out down the road. We'll get past this. No, we ought to take great lengths to ensure there is clarity. That is one of the primary things the elders of this church covenant to do with the members in our membership covenant is to uh, protect, look over, oversee, ensure there is clarity in the gospel and to take action when that begins to get muddied. That we we ask questions. We don't settle for generalized terms or beliefs, not in our churches, not amongst those we love, not with those we witness to, because a vague gospel is an emergency. Vague belief is a crisis in the church. And we ought to prioritize clarity on the message, yes, for the glory of God, but also for the love of one another. Which leads to number three, after the meeting we see the message. Third M, motivation, meeting, now the message. Paul says, I set before them the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles. There's an important distinction here. Paul is not saying, I put forth my version of the gospel up against their version of the gospel, meaning Paul, uh, James John and Peter, because as we know, there are not multiple Gospels. That's the whole point of this letter to begin with. It's not a different Gospel, but the same Gospel that Paul is now putting before a different people. That's the distinction. He is bringing the message to the Gentiles. That was his calling on his life. The same gospel he received, the same gospel he's been preaching for 14 years since his conversion, the same gospel he would proclaim amongst the Gentiles. This is, again, another vital part of the story that um, amongst the church in Jerusalem, there were those who were saying, hey, your buddy Titus needs to be circumcised. He is non-Jew, believed in Jesus. We love that, but he's got to be circumcised for him to be welcomed in our ranks in order to truly be saved. And to that, Paul says in verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. We did not compromise. 
And then Paul writes, incredibly, we did this to preserve the gospel for you, Galatians. Even though you would come, even after this moment, we had you in mind. Not only for Titus's sake, but for any Gentile believers who will come after him. Church, we did this for you. To preserve the gospel for you. Which begs the question, what is the gospel message? What is the message that was so vital for them to preserve? It is the good news that God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues sinners, forgiving them of sin, healing the rupture of the fall in them by faith. And in doing so, promising a full restoration of his creative order forever. This is the good news. This is the gospel that is so vital to preserve, not only for our sakes, but for generations past us, for our children and our children's children, our children's children's children. And on we go to preserve the gospel for them. That God rescues sinners through Christ And we are to receive that by faith. This is the gospel of grace. And why we say often the phrase, grace alone. By faith alone, in Christ alone. Do in no part to the works of the flesh. And so Paul is saying, hey guys, if we gave in in that moment and just said, you know what, Titus, sorry buddy. I know we don't have to, but we got to keep the church in Jerusalem happy. They're, They're Jerusalem. It's the biggest church we got in the area. We, 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 can't, uh, we, we, we can't be ununified with them or disunified with them. No, they said, we did not submit even for a moment because we couldn't. And this is way bigger, I hope you see, even for us now, than the idea of circumcision. And I know some of you are like, dude, can you just stop saying circumcision so much? Like, we get it. But it represents something much more significant than circumcision. It's about freedom in Christ versus bondage in sin. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Quite literally, eternity is on the line and and souls are at stake. And circumcision was a good thing in the Old Testament law, but it was made to become an ultimate thing. And once it got put on the level of salvation, after Christ already fulfilled the law, it became a bad thing. And that's true of a lot of things in our world, a good thing, that when it becomes an ultimate thing, then very much becomes a bad thing. To be entrusted with the gospel is to ensure that we are, both in our own belief and in our word and action, not elevating any works, even good works, to become ultimate aspects of salvation. So, so the, the, there's a list of, I think, good actions even today that believers can be tempted to say that in, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and do these things in order to gain the favor of God. Like, like having a consistent devotional time or, or doing rigorous Bible study. Or avoiding those certain bad sins. You know the sins we're talking about. Those sins. We avoid those sins. And believe in Jesus. 
or uh, supporting a certain initiative that we feel passionate about and want others to be passionate about, or a certain political party, or a certain candidate, or, or a certain aspect of serving others. Those things might be good, good things to pursue in the Christian life. But when we make them ultimate things and, and indicate either explicitly or implicitly that they will earn you favor with God, we become legalistic. And it's the natural bent we all have which is why we need to dwell upon and be reminded of the gospel of grace every day of our lives. The gospel can never be compromised and still have the power to save. Once you add to it, you make it toxic. It reminds me of a story I'm sure many of you are familiar with of, that really arose in the last few years, I think it was 2015-2016, of the tragic story of Flint, Michigan. In Flint, Michigan, a local pediatrician named Dr. Mona Hannah Atisha held up a baby bottle at a news conference of just local uh, news outlets and said she was deeply worried about the water in town because the number of children she was seeing in Flint with elevated levels of lead in their blood had risen alarmingly since the city changed its water supply the previous year. And the reason why they changed their supply was because it was a massive budget cut. They saved a lot of money by changing the water supply. After this news conference, this local pediatrician was verbally attacked and resisted by government officials as they were seeking to defend their decision to start using water from the long-polluted Flint River. But it was not too much later as these headlines began to grow and more people started looking into it that those same officials had to reverse their course and start telling their residents to stop using the water because it was compromised with skyrocketed lead levels. Water is required for life and you cannot compromise that which is vital without doing harm to people's bodies. And in the same way, and even more importantly, when it comes to the gospel, you cannot compromise it even a little bit without doing harm to people's souls. So this is the gospel that Paul set before the leaders in Jerusalem. These three men, John, Peter, James. And their response would make all the difference. This is a turning point in the life of the early church. How did they respond? Would they give in to the Judaizers? No, they affirmed Paul's gospel was the same as their gospel, denouncing the Judaizers. They're saying Titus here is as much of a believer as any of them. He does not need to be circumcised. And we're told this in the text in two ways. I just want to show you how this comes from the text. Verse 6, if your Bible's still open, he says, those who seem to be influential added nothing to me. Meaning, they added nothing to his gospel of grace. That's a positive statement by Paul. He's not saying they didn't mean anything to me. He says, they added nothing to the gospel he set before them. That is good news. And then verse 9, when they perceived the grace given to Paul, quote, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They are glad partners in gospel ministry. They can be entrusted with the gospel. This is a unified front in the church. 
And so if you are a believer, and, and I'd say even more importantly, if you are a member of Grace Church, understand that upon becoming a member, you are entrusted with the gospel in our ministry. You are given that clearance level. You are entrusted with the message, here it is, that Jesus is enough. It was enough for Titus. It was enough for Paul and for Peter. Is Jesus enough for you? Do you communicate it clearly to others that Jesus is enough for them? The answer is the difference between freedom and bondage, between chains and a crown. Two left, two more M's. Fourth way that we're showed how to be entrusted with the gospel is number four, the mission. The mission. When Paul and Barnabas left Jerusalem, parting with their brothers uh, in that city, they were equipped with the same gospel, but with a different mission. Paul and Barnabas sent to the Gentiles primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, while Peter, James, and John would focus their ministry to the Jews, or as the text says, to the circumcised. And the difference in their ministry was not the content of the gospel. Hear me. The difference in their ministry was not the content of the gospel, but the context in which that gospel will be proclaimed. Every believer and every church exists within a cultural context. And that context does not change the gospel, but it does inform, it does shape how the gospel is to be proclaimed and lived out. And we see this over and over again, again, through the book of Acts. We looked at a lot in our vision series last fall when Paul went to Athens. Now, whenever he went to a new city, he would reason with the Jews by referring to the Old Testament scriptures in the synagogues and showed how those scriptures pointed to Jesus. But then when he talked to the Gentiles, those Old Testament scriptures meant nothing to them. If he went with the same strategy in that context, the gospel would not be faithfully proclaimed. So he went to the public square, and he would use things like natural law, and creation, general revelation. He would reference their own poets and their own gods at times to point to the real true God in Jesus Christ. And this is a massive question for the church today and for believers especially within the same church. Grace Church, what is our context? We are largely in a suburban context. We're immersed in it ourselves, even as we try to reach it and transform it for the gospel. And that ought to heavily impact the way we seek to be salt and light in this world. The gospel will never change. We need to be clear in the content of the gospel, but understand the context God has placed us in, in which that gospel can now go out. It's going to be very different than if Grace Church was in a rural context. It's going to be very different if Grace Church was in square... uh, you know, Union Square, Manhattan. Same gospel, same message, but different expression and emphasis of how that gospel is proclaimed and lived out. And if you can just narrow that down to your lives, and I think about even the way Christy talked about the women's conference coming up this weekend, that being a focus of what's this look like to live faithfully in your mission field. So yes, we're all part of Grace Church in a suburban context, but narrow that down to your life, the way each of us lives out our faith will be impacted by our daily context. Do you live in a family where they are not believers? 
your, your workplace? What kind of context is that? Whether it's in a high-rise building with business professionals or an educational context of a school or a living room with young children. What's your context? Our message is the same. We are unified in it, but our mission is shaped by our context. And so each week we gather here, importantly, vitally, to worship together the one God with one gospel. And then, vitally, we move on from here and we scatter to a multitude of contexts to live that gospel out. To be entrusted with the gospel is to take seriously the context God has placed you in. And to leverage the wisdom of others to say, how can, I, how can you help me? How can you help disciple me be faithful here? That we're on the same team here, but God has chosen to send us to all different places within this culture. We gather and then we scatter and we do it again. Number five, last one. This is the left turn, seemingly, of the passage. The mercy. To be entrusted with the gospel is to understand the mercy of God's people. We finish with verse 10, where after they publicly expressed their unity in the gospel, the right hand of fellowship was given, and Paul departs, and, they, and he says, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. An important ending to an important passage, because not only does it connect Uh, The reason why Paul was sent to Jerusalem in the first place, to deliver financial relief to them from the church in Antioch, but it also shows how the ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy are intimately connected for the people of God who are entrusted with the gospel. The ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy cannot be separated and it, I honestly, and I have a lot of commentaries I'm going through with Galatians, most of the commentaries did not address this verse, kind of proving the point. That's often overlooked. That, that the whole passage was on the clarity of the gospel, through grace alone and faith alone, and we Reformation Protestant people, we love that. But then it ends with showing how Paul and the churches were eager to remember and care for the poor, and we often look past that. In his book, Faith Alone, Thomas Schreiner writes this, the quote will be on the screen. Justification is by faith alone, but it isn't a faith that is alone. For true faith produces good works. Still, good works are not the ground or cause of salvation. They are the fruit of one's faith. One of the most destructive things across church history are the time periods and the moments and the people in the church who separate faith in the gospel from the works that ought to be produced by the gospel. And so this is probably a bit of a broad brush, but I think it's fair to say, but again, this is my opinion, over the last century even, Oftentimes, theologically conservative Christians have remembered the gospel but forgotten the poor. Meaning the content of the gospel was protected, but the works of mercy and justice have often, amongst the church at large, fallen short of the biblical standard. And conversely, over the last century, theologically liberal Christians, this is not conservative liberal in terms of politics, but 
theologically liberal Christians have remembered the poor but forgotten the gospel. Where social ministries were focused and promoted, but the clarity of the gospel and conversion and true salvation have fallen short of the biblical standard. And so if we, Grace Church, want to be entrusted with the gospel, may it be true of us. We won't do it perfectly, but may it be true for us that we strive to remember the gospel and the poor. Meaning that we proclaim the gospel in word and then we display the gospel in deed with a love for God and a love for neighbor with a special eye upon the least of these. That I want to be a people that yearns to believe and follow Jesus out of a care for their souls, but I want to love them enough to also care for their bodies. And so let us be like the church in Antioch that seeks to give out of our abundance, to serve, to relieve, to advocate for the least of these locally, regionally, and globally through mercies and justice ministry. And let us not do that out of guilt, but out of gratitude of all we've been given in Christ. And we'll close with this. Paul, in another letter written to the church in Corinth, is talking about a lot of the same thing. And he's encouraging the church in Corinth to be financially generous. And this is the motivation he gives them. He wrote, I say this not as a command, so don't be generous, I'm not saying it as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So church, what does it look like to be entrusted with the gospel? These 10 verses don't, probably don't give us the full exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good one. Paul's motivation showed his care for partners in the gospel. His meeting prioritized the clarity for the gospel. His message focused on the content of the gospel. His mission highlighted the context to the gospel. And finally, his mercy displayed the works from the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you how your word, that oftentimes at first glance can be difficult to parse out, and yet, Lord, the more we look and the more we study and seek to apply, the clearer it becomes. Father, we thank you that Paul was entrusted with the gospel and the way you used him to impact your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that we too can be entrusted with the same gospel because the same spirit that lived in Paul lives in us. Encourage us, Father, when we feel like we fall short. Humble us, Father, when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And yet, Lord, give us the compassion and the clarity to not only believe and proclaim the gospel, but to display it for a world in need. And Lord, allow us to give you all the glory and not seek any of it for ourselves. And I pray that you would do mighty works through Grace Church, not to make much of us, but to make much of your holy name. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
All right, let's stand and respond in song as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. <laughs>